This is Gulf Coast Life. I'm Mike Canary. Thanks for joining us. In times like these here in southwest Florida, one of the organizations working to assist people is the American Red Cross. The nonprofit humanitarian organization provides emergency assistance, disaster relief, and disaster preparedness education across the United States and has been doing so for more than 140 years. As tens of thousands of people in Florida continue struggling with the devastation left behind by Hurricane Ian, more than 1,800 American Red Cross disaster workers and volunteers are on the ground across the affected communities. Today we're checking in with Jill Palmer. She's executive director of the Florida Gulf Coast to Heartland chapter of the American Red Cross. They serve Lee, Collier, Hendry, Glades, and Highlands counties. I spoke with her earlier today. Let's hear that now. Jill, welcome to Gulf Coast Life. Thank you so much for having me, Michael. So um, this is going to be a big question, but broadly speaking, what's the scope and focus of the Red Cross's mission during times like these? So prior to a storm uh, such as Hurricane Ian, the American Red Cross spends a lot of time on our preparedness focus, ensuring that the community has the tools and resources they need to prepare ahead of a storm. Um, And then following the disaster, the Red Cross uh, stands up our disaster response operations, bringing in resources, and that's personnel, uh, our volunteer workforce, our vehicles, mobilizing our uh, kitchens, um, and helping with sheltering following the disaster. Um, were you here for Hurricane Irma back in 2017? Yes, I was. I was here. I was pretty new to the job, about six months on the job at the time. Um, I know that this is what the Red Cross does, so you obviously have systems that have been in place for a long time, but at this point, is there anything that you know you learned or your team learned from Irma that was applicable as we moved into Ian? You know, I think every opportunity for our organization as well as any other disaster response uh, organization is an opportunity to learn. It's an opportunity to see what we can do better, how we can mobilize our efforts quicker, um, making sure that we're meeting the needs of the community, that they're getting what they need as fast as they can. So um, I would say every disaster that the Red Cross responds to, we, we, we do our best to make improvements. Um, I certainly saw those, uh, uh, those efforts enhanced following Hurricane Ian, where we had our emergency response vehicles out on the road the next day. Uh, when it was safe to get out on the roads, we were distributing uh, meals ready to eat to communities that were not able to get out of their homes. Uh, so we were able to get that food going uh, as fast as we could. We also worked with the county to transition the shelters that they operated pre-storm uh, over to the Red Cross. Uh, then we were able to bring in our shelter support trailers with cots and blankets and other supplies to uh, to make those clients that are going to be staying with us for quite some time more comfortable uh, where in a, uh, an evacuation shelter, people bring their own uh, items, their own supplies. And so then when we transition that, we want to bring in some uh, some supplies that they'll be able to have on a on a more long term scale. Understood. So you you guys come in and kind of uh, I, I wasn't aware of that. I thought maybe you operated the shelters in conjunction with the counties, but it sounds like they have the shelters and then you come in and sort of bolster what they're doing once uh, a storm actually hits. Is that about right? It is. So we have a letter of intent with the, with each of the counties. Uh, and so we, we talk with them pre-storm about what their needs are going to be, um, if they are going to need additional support with uh, a shelter support team, uh, which would be a workforce team. And then after the storm passes and it's safe to transition, then we'll come in and, uh, and help take that over for them. How many shelters are still uh, in operation and how many people are at them? 
So right now in Lee County, we have two shelters. In Collier County, we have one shelter. Um, and then to the north of us, we have a, a couple additional shelters open. But within my, my service area, we have the three. Uh, and we have had uh, around 1,600 staying with us in those shelters over the last couple of days. Uh, you mentioned the trucks distributing food. Uh, what are the mobile kitchens all about? You know, where are they at this point and what is being done there and what can people get? So we have, uh, we work very closely with our partners with the Southern Baptist. Uh, they help operate, um, the Southern Baptist Disaster Relief helps operate our mobile kitchens uh, where the Red Cross provides them with the, the food, they cook it, and then we bring in our emergency vehicles uh, that we call ERVs, um, uh, emergency response vehicles distribute the food out into the community, and they are providing um, uh, just on Sunday alone, uh, our kitchens provided over 850,000 meals across the the service area where the Red Cross is responding to Hurricane Ian, Um, and they're distributing that uh, in those vehicles, and we have about 120 of those vehicles that are on the ground mobilized, uh, going into neighborhoods that are most heavily impacted. Uh, They're also doing stationary fixed-site feeding stations and working in conjunction with some of our disaster aid stations that we have uh, where you can get snacks and water, um, some disaster care, uh, and also um, uh, being able to to connect with other community partners. Uh, Where is the best place for people to go to see where mobile kitchens and disaster aid stations are located? So we would direct anybody to call 1-800-RED-CROSS. And based on your location, uh, our call center can then direct you to the closest site where you would be able to find food and other disaster items. Can you explain sort of the scope of what happens at the disaster aid stations? Because I was reading up on them, and it seems like there's more happening there than just providing people with, with food. Absolutely. So the the aid stations, uh, it's a place where, uh, as I said, you can come and you can get food. We've got meal boxes that you can take with you uh, that have a couple days worth of food in them. We also have some other uh, disaster cleanup supplies. Uh, that you can use if you're, you know, trying to clean up your home. Um, we also have um, some snacks and some water. There's also uh, other disaster services that would be there to be able to talk with you about your disaster, uh, help you navigate what the recovery process is going to be. Um, several of our stations are also equipped with uh, a Starlink satellite. So if you need to get access to Wi-Fi, um, you'd be able to go there and, and have access to that. And is also an aspect of that that has to do with providing people with uh, mental health support? We we can certainly make referrals. Uh, several of the stations have disaster health services and disaster mental health service volunteers that are there. Um, and you can imagine, you know, the, the loss and the trauma that uh, that our community is going through. Those are certainly areas where we have a need. Um, I read that the Red Cross has teams that are sort of compiling uh, data on how much damage has been done and where um, in order to maybe, you know, help with recovery longer term. Can you explain what that's all about? So we have volunteers that are on the ground doing damage assessments, and they are going through uh, the community into the affected areas. They are pinning all of the what we would consider um, heavily damaged or destroyed structures so that we have a, a, you know, a good overview of where uh, the heaviest hit areas are in those unlivable conditions. Um, the Red Cross has not rolled out any direct 
uh, assistance at this point, direct financial assistance. Uh, but that is something, you know, uh, after we get through this immediate life sustaining response that we're in right now, uh, that we look at uh, going into, you know, the next month or so, depending on um, how the response is going at this point. You have people. We from- just right now, our number one focus is to make sure that people have a safe place to be, that we have our shelters, that anybody can come to the shelter, even if you don't want to stay you can come to the shelter for a meal. You can come there for health services, for mental health services, to pick up some supplies. Um, those shelters are a safe place, and we just want to ensure that everybody in the community knows that they are welcome to come to a shelter. Understood. Um, you have people from all over the country that come in and help with this kind of effort, right? We do. We currently have uh, volunteer and staff from all 50 states and uh, District of Columbia that are here uh, responding to our uh, disaster in the community. It's pretty phenomenal. Um, Those vehicles that come from all over, you know, on any given day, we might have five of those emergency response vehicles located in South Florida. We currently have 120 of them here. Uh, So they drive from all over. Uh, I just met somebody at the shelter this morning that was from, uh, from Hawaii. Uh, and also that there was another volunteer here from Guam. So uh, we, it certainly takes a community to help us respond. That's the amazing power of the American Red Cross, that we have these resources that we're able to deploy in and that we can ramp up the scale and the scope of our disaster and that we will be here for weeks and months to come. So by extension, then when disasters hit other areas, then workers and volunteers from here go help there, right? Absolutely. Uh, our chapter here in Lee Collier, Henry Glades and Highlands, uh, we uh, in the South Florida region probably deploy outside of our area the most volunteers across that 13 county area. Our volunteers are extremely generous with their time. A deployment is 14 days. So volunteers that are that are coming into us are here, you know, giving up of their time uh, to help our community recover Uh, Many of them are choosing to even extend their deployment and stay with us even longer, which is just really remarkable when you think about the sacrifice they're making. Um, But they also understand that there's a significant need to help our community. And we also are, uh, you know, extremely uh, excited to welcome in what we call event-based volunteers. These are local community volunteers that have perhaps never volunteered with the Red Cross before, but they've called us. They've said, hey, I've got time. I want to help. What can we do? Uh, We do an intake process with them, and then we staff them to an area where uh, we might have a need, and that could be at a shelter. That could be at a warehouse. That might be helping one of our kitchen sites. Um, that might be helping with the feeding. So based on where what their availability is, where we have a need, our volunteer services team is helping put those folks to work. So if there are people listening who want to help, you're able to put them to help, you know, put them to work relatively quickly? We are. We are, yes. Uh, so there's, like I said, a short intake process, a brief orientation, just to make sure that they know what is expected of them. Um, and then we can put them to work and they can sign up for a shift, uh, usually the next day. And the best way to find out about those opportunities is 1-800-RED-CROSS. Okay. And other than volunteering, how can people help? Is, is financial support the primary thing or are you also looking for donations of items that people need? 
the financial donations is what it enables the Red Cross uh, to be able to deliver our mission. Uh, we don't get government funding for our disaster services, so it takes the generosity of the community um, to be able to help us with this immediate response. And then also as we go forward in the next weeks and months to come, even looking long term at long term recovery. Uh, so financial donations will enable us the uh, opportunity to get the items that are most needed to where they're needed. So if a client has a need for baby wipes or formula or, you know, a specialized product, those financial donations let the Red Cross be able to put them to work where they're best needed. Um, and also, you know, another way to help if, if financial donations are, are not in somebody's ability is the, the volunteering of your time and your talent, um, being able to give to others that are experiencing a disaster. Uh, we absolutely couldn't do what we, what we do without our volunteers. How are your local volunteers and staff members doing? Because, you know, helping others can be difficult if you have gone through something that requires help, if you know what I mean. I do. And, and, and many of our own local volunteers were impacted by this storm. You know, we, we were here, uh, we live in this community, um, but we were able to mobilize those that were uh, able to safely and sec- safely secure their own homes, felt like they had things pretty well settled, and they were ready to come to work um, and help us. You know, they've, they've done this quite a bit. They know what it's like to be working for a disaster response organization. They also understand that 90% of our workforce are volunteers. And so they raised their hands and said, put us to work. Let us know where we're needed. Um, but, of course, we had many of our own local volunteers that were impacted by the storm. You grew up in Fort Myers, right? I did, yeah. What's it like to be doing this kind of work um, in a place that you have such you know, deep roots? You know, it's... Um, it's really quite inspiring to do this work, Michael. I've deployed to other disasters. Last year, I deployed to Louisiana for two weeks myself following uh, Hurricane Ida. I deployed to North Florida uh, prior to Hurricane Michael was there for two weeks. I was here for Hurricane Irma. Um, I have seen disasters, um, but I also see the the amazing resiliency of communities uh, and the, you know, the humanitarian effort of not just the American Red Cross, but all of the organizations that come to aid uh, following these disasters. So as I drive around and I interact with the community and our clients, I, um, it really does a lot to just um, fill your heart with gratitude for one, how grateful people are that somebody's here to help them. You know, the day after the storm, I was driving around um, in the Iona McGregor area, and I was handing out water and snacks. It's what I had loaded in my car. And as I handed a woman uh, a water, you know, you could just tell that she, you know, that she just needed a little something. And I asked her if I could give her a hug and um, and just stood there on the side of the road and, you know, just let her sob on my shoulder. And being able to bring that comfort and hope to somebody who is, you know, having having probably one of the darkest moments of their life. I know what it's like to be a client of the Red Cross. I lost my house to a fire uh, about uh, 12 years ago myself. And um, I know what it's like to stand out in your front yard and have nothing left. And so when somebody comes up and just says, you know, I'm here for you, I care about you, 
can I give you a hug? You know, and I hope that when people see the Red Cross coming and they see that that cross on the side of our vehicles, they know that we're here to provide comfort and compassion um, and that we will help our community get through this. Um, those, are, those are all the questions I have. Are there any aspects of what's going on that I've overlooked that you'd want to highlight or just any final thoughts? Just to, just putting it out that if somebody is, is you know, staying in their home and, uh, you know, that it is an unsafe condition or they just find that they need a place of respite to really encourage the community to understand that our shelters are a place of safety, um, that they can come here, that there will be a team of volunteers to help take care of them. There will be a hot meal for them, that we have disaster health services, mental health services, spiritual care. Uh, that we are uh, working with our community partners to help with, um, you know, that planning of what, what do I do next? So there are, uh, there are folks in our shelters that are working with those clients and letting them know what resources are available. So uh, we will continue to shelter as long as there is a need. We will continue to do the feeding in our community as long as there is a need. Uh, and we're grateful for the community partners that are working alongside with us. All right. Jill Palmer is executive director of the Florida Gulf Coast to Heartland chapter for the American Red Cross. Jill, thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Michael, so much. I appreciate it. If you'd like to engage with us about today's show or share any stories or photos or videos of what you've experienced because of the storm and what you're still facing now, please do so using WGCU social media. Find us on Facebook. We're at WGCU Public Media. And on Twitter, we're at WGCU. Use the hashtag GCL. For the rest of the show today, we're going to discuss what happens to boats that have been sunk or washed ashore by Hurricane Ian and whose responsibility it is to remove or salvage them. I talked earlier today with Scott Croft. He's vice president of public affairs with the Boat Owners Association of the United States, or Boat USA. Scott, welcome to the show. Welcome. Thank you very much. So um, does anyone at this point have a handle on how many boats have been washed ashore or damaged or destroyed by Hurricane Ian? Nobody has an exact number. I can tell you it's in the thousands. Um, It will probably take uh, several months before anybody really gets a complete handle on it because there's a long tail of claims that comes in after a storm. They don't want to get filed. You know, people are focusing on the home and other things, but once they get uh, attention to the boat, and, you know, people may file a claim 90 days from now. They may not notice they had damage. Something pops up. So it's going to be a while, but it's significant. It's in the thousands. It's it's probably one of the largest storms I've experienced uh, with my with my 20 years at, at Boat Owners Association of the United States. Wow. And, you know, living here, it's like that's the sort of the symbol of the storm right now. There's just boats in very strange places everywhere you go. Um, whose responsibility yep. are boats that have washed ashore? Is it the boat owner or is it the property owner? Explain just kind of what happens once a boat winds up on land. It is 100% the boat owner's responsibility. And not all boat owners have an insurance policy to help them salvage the boat, but that doesn't mean they can get out of, you know, being an irresponsible boat owner and leaving it on somebody's yard in a marina, uh, could be blown back into the mangroves, perhaps in an, an environmentally sensitive area. It is 100% the boat owner's responsibility to remove that boat and nobody else. Uh, when does a boat become derelict? Um, at what point you know, if you can't find the owner, like what happens when a boat ends up somewhere and nobody knows what to do with it? Sure. After every storm, there are vessels that are blown into places that uh, may be uh, difficult to get at. 
unfortunately, there are some vessel owners who are irresponsible and they, they, they leave, they abandon the vessel uh, for whatever reason. They don't have perhaps the funds or the professional assistance. Perhaps they didn't have an insurance policy to help them out with the cost because it can be very significant, uh, you know, getting a boat out of a tricky spot. But the, the boat owner really has to step up and prevent that boat from being derelict. And uh, it's been an issue in the state of Florida for many years, uh, you know, hurricanes or not, uh, with the issue of some owners uh, deciding to leave their vessels and, uh, and, and abandon them in places. And unfortunately, they become environmental issues. They become eyesores. Uh, they may have the potential to carry fuel still aboard. Um, so they just end up polluting our waterways and actually make it worse for all the rest of the responsible boat owners out there. Is it possible to say, and I know this is a very general question, but, you know, I see a boat that's been washed, you know, 200 yards from the river that I live near and it's laying there. Is that going to just automatically going to be a total loss or are boats sort of resilient in the sense that they can still be fixed? That is a good question. And that's, that, that answer, I cannot answer. Um, what, what generally happens if... If the boat is, uh, the cost of repairs exceeds the value of the insurance policy if it's insured, uh, then the boat is, is, is salvaged and liquidated or perhaps given back to the owner. Uh, for owners who do not have insurance, you know, those, those decisions are, are, are made by them. But, but generally speaking, uh, you can't leave that boat there, uh, no matter what condition it is, no matter if it's repairable or not. Um, but yes, there are a, quite a few vessels that are damaged in hurricanes, uh, and they are repaired successfully. Um, they may not have water intrusion inside the boat. Um, it's fiberglass work. A lot of what we call, you know, scratch and dent, a lot of that goes on even when boats just float up uh, out, of their, out of their home port or something and end up uh, against a building or something like that. Generally, the value of the boat is retained, and it's a lot of fiberglass work. So you will see vessels like that recovered if the value is there. Hmm. Um, what about a boat that winds up in an environmentally sensitive area like on mangroves? Is there permitting or challenges, or, or, or do the rules kind of change in a disaster like this? Absolutely. You know, no matter what, uh, we tell folks, if you're going to go salvage a boat, you need permission, whether it's in a mangrove, an environmentally sensitive area, or for that matter, in a marina. Um, there's a lot of fuel oil that's often spilled. I've been down to several hurricanes, and it, they're just nasty, polluted places. You don't want to be caught smoking. So if it's in a mangrove, you are most likely going to have to deal with whoever manages that uh, mangrove, whether it's FWC or, or local, uh, you know, local governments. Um, but those areas, are especially uh, vessels, cannot be left there. And, and I would dare say those are boats are the priority vessels for everybody to remove and get out of there as quickly as possible. But they do present challenges. You can't get in there often. Uh, you got to be uh, the, the agency that usually runs like a park or something like that. There's there's very, there's certain things that are prescribed that you must do to prevent further harm to the area while you're salvaging the boat. So it can get expensive. So that's another good reason to have an insurance policy. But you know those vessels uh, are are a big problem. Have been a big problem for Florida in the past, and they've tried to address that. But every hurricane. After every hurricane, we see vessels that are abandoned, sadly abandoned. Um, last question. Just it seems to me like it must be a huge task to, um, you know, re retrieve a sunken boat, especially a really big boat. Is that just something that you need a crane for? Or, I mean, how does that even work? 
Yeah, that's not a DIY at all. In fact, uh, if any boat, yeah, pretty much any size vessel that's been submerged or is still submerged, that's not going to be something for the homeowner. You know, the state does have an abandoned derelict vessel program. It is not meant to address the issues after a hurricane on the scope of the lost vessels we have. Uh, Florida's abandoned derelict vessel program has been working quite well. But it, again, it's meant for ongoing vessels that they find, such as the one you may have previously mentioned. But the scope and volume of vessels after a hurricane like Ian that are washed up, it, you know, to be fair, it's going to be a challenge even finding these vessels. It may take several months before you find a boat, and then you may not find the boat whole. You may, you, you know, I, I, I've been in the past where the only thing left from the boat was the engine because it was the heaviest thing and the, the whole structure and the rest of the boat is missing. So you'll see, you know, parts of vessels. So it may not even be the whole vessel, but the cleanup needs to happen, whether it's just pieces of the boat or the entire vessel. It needs to be removed, and you can't, re you can't rely on the state uh, to take care of that. That is 100% the owner's responsibility. All right, Scott, that's all the time we have, but I appreciate you passing along this great information. Scott Croft is Vice President of Public Affairs with the Boat Owners Association of the United States, or Boat USA. Scott, thanks for your time. You're welcome. And thanks also to our earlier guest, Jill Palmer, Executive Director of the Florida Gulf Coast to Heartland Chapter of the American Red Cross. To find a list of the mobile kitchens and disaster aid stations they're currently operating, call 1-800-RED-CROSS. That's 1-800-733-2767. If you missed any of today's show, you can always hear episodes in their entirety on our website, wgcu.org gcl, or wherever you get your podcasts. Our show today was produced by yours truly. Our director today is Jared Gonzalez. Our social media coordinator is Tara Calligan. For now, thank you for listening. I'm Mike Canary. This is WGCU-FM, Fort Myers 90.1, WMKO Marco Island 91.7 FM. We are NPR for Southwest Florida.